now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. In Episode 6, Season 2, Just Science interviews Kimberly Meza from the Mesa Police Department during the annual ASCLAD Symposium held in Dallas, Texas. Kimberly describes how a blood spatter analyst takes in a scene, especially one as gruesome as this case, where the victim was brutally stabbed in their apartment by an unknown suspect. The suspect's DNA that was found at the scene initially had no match in CODIS, and the latent prints taken at the scene created no leads. There were no DNA leads in the case until a sexual assault kit was entered into the system. The sexual assault kit was taken nine days before the murder, but took six months to finally enter the system. Stay tuned as we navigate a case that could have potentially gone unsolved if a woman had chosen not to have a sexual assault kit administered, her perpetrator being an ex-boyfriend and the father of her child. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Funding for this season is brought to you by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. We're podcasting this week from the American Society of Crime Lab Directors meeting in Dallas, Texas in early May of 2017 delving into some of the really interesting cases, especially the ones that provide us some lessons about forensic science practice. And with us, Kimberly Meza from Mesa. Yes. (laughs) From Mesa Police Department in Arizona. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you very much. When did you start at Mesa PD? You're a DNA analyst. Did you start as a DNA analyst, or how did that work? Sure. I started uh, in 2000 as a DNA analyst. As part of our DNA unit, we do serology, which is body fluid identification. We do the DNA analysis, and then all of our analysts in the DNA unit also are blood spatter experts. So Mm -hmm. we attend crime scenes when there's multiple bleeders or some question about what the events occurred. So I did that for about eight years, and then I promoted up to be the supervisor of the DNA unit, and I did that for an additional four years before I became the lab administrator, and that's what I'm currently doing. Hence being at ASCLAD. So it's rather unusual for analysts to cross-train and also do crime scene work. Are you all still organized in that way at MESA, and do you find that to be an advantage in terms of how you do business? Our laboratory actually does include our crime scene unit, which Mm -hmm. is a 24-7 operation, and that is their full-time job. So they do go out to scenes anywhere from criminal damage all the way up to homicide and collect evidence, do photography, um, swab for DNA, do latent prints, um, lifts of shoe prints, things like that. But when it gets into some of the more technical areas, the blood spatter interpretation versus Mm -hmm. the documentation, and uh, say like trajectory or reconstructions of firearms, we actually have our forensic scientists go out and perform those. So our biology unit, which is the DNA unit, would send out the blood spatter experts, Mm -hmm. and that way they have time when they get back to do that interpretation, which our crime scene unit typically doesn't. They go from scene to scene to scene. And same thing with our firearms examiners. They would go collect the evidence uh, that pertained to the interpretation they were being requested to do, and then they would bring that back to the lab to do that work. So it works quite well. Um, Like I said, gives the time. And then with the blood spatter, the other advantage is that the DNA analysts will be doing that analysis when they get back to the lab. So they have a sense of what the scene was and which evidence is most critical to perform first. 
based mm -hmm. on the blood spatter that they saw. Sure. Uh, and that actually is going to be relevant as we go through the story that, that you mm -hmm. all do that. Now, how did you come to be in Mesa? Are you from Arizona or from Mesa itself? So I actually moved to Arizona with my family when I was 12. So I've mm -hmm. mostly grown up in Arizona. And it was more in the Phoenix Scottsdale area. And mm -hmm. then uh, when I went to school, I went to U of A mm -hmm. and I got my uh, bachelor's in biochemistry and molecular and cellular biology. And then from there, I went on and got my master's of forensic science from the University of New Haven. But they had a satellite campus in Sacramento, so that's where I went to school and then did an internship there at Sacramento County Crime Lab. Sure, following um, Henry Lee. There. That's correct. Yeah, the Henry Lee, uh, I don't know whether, I won't call it mafia, but conglomerate maybe is a better word. <laughs> uh, and then I got, uh, when I started looking for uh, jobs, I saw that Mesa had a DNA analyst position open. And so it was a chance to go back to Arizona where my family is. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I was lucky enough to get hired. Yeah, I, uh, as I, we were talking a little bit before the podcast, I've been to Mesa a couple times actually. One of my favorite police chiefs, uh, he, he left Mesa to go to San Francisco, but now I think he's like a district attorney up there now, not chief, but is George Gascon. And so I remember visiting Mesa and it was great. The Mesa PD uh, actually has orange trees out front, which was really nice. At that time I lived in DC. So coming from DC winter to Mesa, orange tree winter, <laughs> it was quite, quite nice. But you all have, have since actually established your own facility. Uh, in Mesa, is that right? That's correct. We've actually had a crime lab from very early on. Uh, we established in, in the 1980s and the crime lab used to be in a 7,000 square foot basement of the municipal court building and then in September of 2008 we moved into the current facility we're at now which is a 50,000 square foot um, standalone crime lab. Wow, so are you doing just Mesa work or throughout the East Valley? Well we actually uh, originally just performed analysis for the city of Mesa, but uh, for the last five years we've actually also been doing DNA analysis, controlled substance analysis, and toxicology for the town of Gilbert, which is just a uh, sister city of ours. Do you ever work with some of the tribal areas there near Mesa? Do you ever do any work jointly with them? or uh, Occasionally, uh, our department has a, a fusion center which has multiple agencies that are in the East Valley. And if we are assisting those other agencies, then a lot of times their work would come to our crime lab as well. I see, I see. So it's an immense area. I, I've never seen the actual outline, but my impression, again, maybe being an East Coast person, you're talking about a very large geographic area, no matter where you are, but Mesa in particular. And of course, you've had enormous population growth as well. Which So the case in question here when did this occur and whereabouts in Mesa was it? It actually occurred in uh, December of 2002 and it was near our central station so close to where our downtown area is basically. Okay, tell us more about the particular incident first. Sure, so the, the case that was solved with forensics was a homicide case and it was actually a, if you will, an unknown suspect case. So when we got called to the scene we didn't have any direction on a potential suspect. So in this case, what happened was we got a phone call from the victim's father that his son actually had committed suicide, is what he reported to us. What we'd come to learn from the father is that the son was mentally challenged and his parents were attempting to do was to allow him to have a normal life. So they actually got him an apartment and he was able to live on his own and about once a week they would go and help him go to the grocery store and do kind of a, a normal life with him. 
So when he showed up and actually went into the house or into the apartment, he saw blood and saw his son on the floor and he actually made an assumption that he had killed himself. So he called it in like that. Once we arrived, it was pretty apparent that it was not. There was blood throughout the apartment and quite a bit. And then there was furniture that was uh, and a table and chairs that were knocked over. And then uh, he had multiple stab wounds. And in fact, later I discovered how many. He had about 57 stab wounds mm. uh, that, from the scene. So from a stabbing, there's quite a bit of blood. And in particular in this case, when a blood spatter analyst is going to go to a scene such as that, really what they're looking for is, yes, to document what potentially occurred and the events that occurred that caused the bloodshed. But in this case, what we really were looking for is there blood here that does not belong to the victim and potentially blood from the suspect. Right. And so... Because you, um, you have to imagine not only the number of stab wounds, but just the fact that it's spread out over the apartment. I assume there was a lot of displacement of furniture, that kind of thing. So it suggests a struggle, doesn't it? Absolutely. And based on the amount of wounds that he had, the amount of bleeding that he had, you know, we saw multiple stains throughout the entire apartment. Some from, you know, blood being touched to objects and smear marks, and then there was actual different spatter throughout. And from our training in blood spatter, a lot of times what happens when people are using knives is that the suspect, when he or she is stabbing, they actually have a potential to cut themselves and then they will actually be bleeding at the scene as well. And so where the different spatter indicates potential events, what we were looking for at the scene was an actual stains that potentially were just being dripped or by just, we call them passive drops and drops that are just left by somebody bleeding without any sort of velocity or force to them. So the blood's mm -hmm. just dropping. When blood drops with no velocity to it, it's just gravity. It actually makes a perfect circle. And so that's well, what I was it's fair, looking. fairly viscous, so it's not going to like splatter out around the circle unless it's an awful lot of blood, right? Um, you know, it just depends on the surface the blood is hitting. So if it hits carpet, it's going to just absorb in and be really tiny. If it's going to hit more of a non-porous surface, it'll kind of create a larger stain, if you will, but still has that circular appearance. So now I can imagine the victim, of course, is going to have some bleeding like that. So, I mean, the sheer amount of sampling you would need to do would be quite difficult. So how did you approach that problem at that level? Did you just do an awful lot of sampling and then try to do some sort of screening technique or how did that work? So at the scene, you just don't know. And so you're going to have to collect a lot because until you go back and actually run that DNA, there's no knowing mm -hmm. what blood belonged to who. So since you have that one shot when you're at the crime scene, you'll collect um, sampling throughout. And again, based on the, the patterns and what you're looking for is what you're going to collect. But really here also to explain events, you're probably collecting from mul just multiple areas. Even if they all come back to be the victim, it still indicates where they've been. But in this case, there was two stains that actually were very important to me right off the bat. The suspect was lying on his stomach in the bedroom and his arm was half on a pillow. and on the pillow as well as on his sweatshirt on his back where the circle drops and so right away there's a potential that that maybe belongs to somebody other than him uh, there's perfect explanation why there might be drops right on top of him when he's in that position and that could just be from blood dripping off the knife sure so it may or may not be important but at least it indicated a potential for me to start with so where i collected evidence throughout the whole house 
when I got back to the lab, those were the two samples that I was going to start with to run the DNA analysis on. Sure, of course. So the two questions that come to mind, let me start with reconstruction. So, you know, obviously you're looking from your perspective, from a biology perspective, you're trying to find DNA from the perpetrator, right? But somebody who's trying to do reconstruction, even though they would benefit enormously from the information that you get, might have a different view of the blood spatter and blood evidence. So how does that work? Does the reconstruction person sort of do their thing and documentation first, and then you're coming in behind that? Or are you all working in tandem? Or I actually was doing both. So oh, okay. I, I am the reconstructionist, and I am the DNA analyst. That's why that's that benefit of having see. both training. Oh, OK, so you actually were, OK, very good. Right. Yeah. So I had two individuals from the lab with me assisting me. So I would direct you know, what I wanted collected. Another person was doing the note taking and the drawing of the scene and documenting you know, the different stains, the different patterns. And then separate from us, we also had crime scene staff there, and they were the ones taking the photographs and, and keeping that documentation. So we had basically a team of forensic analysts in that scene, documenting, collecting. A lot of times uh, the interpretation, even though there's quite a bit of knowledge you have from just at that scene, a lot of interpretation happens after the fact with the photographs. If you're looking at those to really reconstruct what happens uh, from photographs, you can also even do measurements and determinations of point of origin and point of impact and things like that. Those are usually done at the lab afterwards. Sure. Now, now when did you have an estimate of your post-mortem interval? When had you gotten to the scene compared to when the incident had occurred? Do you have good information on that? Um, I didn't. Really, at the point, we know when the, the father called and then when we arrived, so I don't know the time frame. It had probably not been more than a few days just based on the body's decomposition was not very far. Okay. So I do know that at that point. But mostly it's just at that point going in and from the discovery to our analysis, we do arrive when the body's still there for the same reasons that became important in this case so that we can interpret based on exactly where the body is at and what potentially is important to the scene, including what's on the body. How much other sampling did you do? I mean, did you do a lot of fingerprint or trace work as well? How did that impact the case? In this case, it didn't. We discovered lots of latent prints in a, a residence, as you would expect, mm -hmm. just from different people being there. The prints that were collected did not lead us into any suspects in this case. I see. I guess the, in all of these cases, the suspect starts with the, probably the person who calls it in, right? Was the father considered a suspect at that time, and were you all able to exonerate him or did you find other suspects? Where did you start to try to get your investigative leads going? Right, so as the team arrives, it includes our homicide staff and uh, any PD staff that are part of that team. They're the ones that would start that investigation. So they're gonna start doing history on the, the victim, his family, start you know, canvassing, talking to neighbors, finding out everything they can about him and, and what's going on. Uh, so very early on, I don't believe the father was a suspect at all, if so, for a very short time frame, just to eliminate him. So you sampled from the pillow and the sweatshirt, is that right? That's correct. And did those wind up being somebody other than the victim? They did. For a scene where there was so much blood, the blood spatter really narrowed it down to what was, like I said, a good starting point. And when those samples were ran immediately, it was apparent that those were not, they did not match the victim. And so this is from a potential suspect. Blood doesn't always necessarily tell you when it was placed. Somebody can bleed at a scene. But why this was also very important is because this was blood based on the fact that it was passive and that there was no, you know, it was just gravity. It was blood that was 
placed on that victim when he was in the position where he died. So he's lying on his stomach when that blood is placed there. So that is about as close as you can get forensically to time of event. That there's a person bleeding above this person in the position in which they died. So a very strong indication that this is your suspect. Now, this was relatively early in DNA with respect to unsubcases. You know, I mean, you obviously there was a DNA database, but I'm guessing nationally it was probably about a million people in the database, at, if that, in 2002, 2003. Now there's over 10 million. So obviously you put it into CODIS, and what happened at that point? So put it into CODIS and unfortunately did not return any matches. Mm -hmm. As CODIS operates, that sample stayed in the database and will you know, be there forever. At that point, uh, we were done with our analysis in terms of helping out the police department in, in, in developing an investigative lead. Did they bring any potential suspects to you as saying, hey, check these people out? They did, actually. So for the next uh, six months or so, I would occasionally get a known sample from a suspect. Quite often, the investigator would say, this is our guy. So they felt very strongly about this individual. And then I would run it, and it would come back not a match. So over the period of those six months, eliminated six people as potential suspects. And we were just going to continue that route, I believe, until I ended up working a separate case, which was a sex crime. We had a sexual assault kit that came in. And in terms of kind of placement of the timeline, it turns out that this sex assault kit was actually collected nine days before the homicide occurred. In this case, the victim of the sexual assault reported that her ex-boyfriend, who is the father of her child, had come over to the residence and had sexually assaulted her. And so she went to the hospital, reported it to the police department, went to the hospital and got a sex assault kit collected. Back in 2002, interesting enough, kind of different from today's standards, mm -hmm. sex assault kits that had suspects when there was not a question on whether a sex act had occurred, so meaning that the suspect and the victim in that case are both indicating that a sex act occurred, but the question comes in is, is consent. Was mm -hmm. it consensual or not? Quite often those would not be requested to be analyzed in the crime lab because working that DNA was not going to solve the question of consent. So typically that would not be a case that a detective would request us to work. Now, of course, today where we've moved to is that all sex crimes regardless are worked, and that's also because of our understanding of CODIS and how valuable it is to be able to link. Maybe we know who the individual is in this case, but maybe it would help solve another case, which is what happened here, but was kind of unheard of back then. Well, yeah, and there are still jurisdictions where you'll find that consent cases are not worked, certainly with the same priority. And it's unfortunate, we actually just did a, um, another podcast looking at the issue of sexual assault on campus. And one of the things that comes out of that work is the huge number of filters that a case goes through before it even ever comes to the police. So a woman on campus may be the victim of a sexual assault, but never reported. And there's actually a very small number that do. And the lesson from the, that research to some extent is, hey, if it gets reported to the police, something significant has gone on here. Okay, you should not prejudge it in that regard and work it as if it were not a consent case. That may not be relevant at all because you don't know what, what pattern this individual is, is exhibiting and what other linkages might occur and so on and so forth. And certainly I think now standard practice in, in most departments. And this case actually turns out to be a very important one. So nine days earlier, this other incident occurred 
Was the perpetrator arrested at that time for that case? He was not, actually. He was interviewed, and again, at that point, it was a question of consent. His story was, you know, quite different. But still, in that case, they sent the sex assault kit to the lab. I don't know the detective's motives. You know, if she had determined that, you know, I want to see if he's done this before or anything. It did come to the lab within about a month of the sexual assault is when the request came to us to begin to work. But the way that our crime lab operates and still to this day does is that we prioritize cases based on the type of a case themselves. So meaning that homicides would get worked first and then sex crimes would be next and then aggravated assaults and robberies and things like that before you'd get maybe to your property crimes. So at this point, we're already in the processing of the homicide case. So we're working that homicide case, working samples as they come in. And then we have our standard, if you will, list of cases that are holding for us to work next. And in that small backlog included this sex assault kit for us to get to at this point. So we started working that sex assault kits about six months after the assault had happened. And by that time, you had probably become very familiar with the homicide profile because they kept bringing in suspects, right? And so, and you kept checking it. And it turned out you were the analyst on the sexual assault as well. Yes, I was. And you're right. The department record number for my homicide was almost burned into my head. And so mm -hmm. I worked the sex assault kit, developed the DNA profile, and then the very next thing you do is you go enter it into the CODIS database. And the database allows you, when you put the sample in, to do an immediate search of your local database, which is all the DNA profiles that your agency has entered into the database. So when I put in that sample, I did that search, and what returned was the department record number of the unsolved homicide. So it was a moment of, oh my gosh, this is the unsolved homicide that I've been working. It was a very powerful moment just because at that point I get to call the detective instead of him sending over a sample to me every month to run. Now I get to call him and tell him that I have an investigative lead for him. Well, that was unusual at that time. The cold hits that have become, you know, CSI fame, but also thousands and thousands of cold hits have now been developed by DNA was much more unusual back at that time. It was, and to the point where, you know, we were so excited when we developed a hit like that, we thought the database should have had some sort of alarm that just gave you some, like, you know, and, and now we, we receive so many hits, which is wonderful, that we don't need that so anymore. So <laughs> Caught another one. I hope the detectives have become used to you calling them. You know, there's a real issue there, like, how can you improve clearance rates? and the power of using forensic results, and not just DNA, but uh, many, many other uh, forensic techniques can be used to clear cases and really improve the effectiveness of the detective squad enormously. It truly is a revolution if it's used properly. It truly is, and if I might just talk a little bit outside of this case, our laboratory has gotten to the point where we are a real-time laboratory in all of our analytical units. So now today in biology, any case that comes through the door is actually completed, depending, does not matter the level mm -hmm. of crime, between 30 and 45 days. And so we are truly being that investigative assistance or a tool for them. We have observed for the last five years in property crimes, we return an investigative lead 41% of the time. Wow. So in those cases that have very low clearance rates, we've found that we can be very, very powerful tool for And that's with biological evidence. That is just biological evidence, which goes to say latent prints is also a very powerful tool for identification, and that does not even include that secondary area. Again, that goes back to the research, NIJ research. 
really established the value of the use of DNA in burglaries. So I'm happy to see you guys following up on that so amazingly. 41% I think is even better than Denver did in, in that it, research study. It is quite high and it's, it's impressive. Obviously, depending on your area, but we have a lot of property crime compared to violent crime in Mesa. So a lot of that work comes our way. So this individual must have been really out of control at this time to do that. Do we know why he targeted this one young man for the homicide? What else was going on at that time with him? At this point, then, the detectives did go back and interview him. During their extensive interview, they did drop that they had the DNA, and he did end up confessing. So at that time, he outlined what had occurred. And this apartment where the individual was killed was in an upper level, second mm -hmm. story. Our suspect, he actually was friends with the individual that lived below him. And from going and visiting is they all got connected and were somewhat friends, meaning that he'd at least been in the residence before. And I think they had gone there and watched like a, a, a fight or something on television and had spent mm -hmm. this time. Partly what was discovered is that because this individual was a little bit slow and because he had a lot of financial resources through his parents is that they were probably using him for money or for access to the you know these fights or, or that sort of thing. So what he said is that he went there to see his friend, which was in the low level. He wasn't there, so he wanted to wait for him. So he went upstairs to this individual's house. At that point, what apparently occurred was a fight between them because at this point, the victim had identified or his father had gotten upset with him that some money had been taken. But, you know, he'd just given him all the money and he doesn't have any money. What happened to the money? And he ends up saying, well, you know, I have these friends. You know, they needed money. I loaned the money. And so his dad had gotten angry and said that you're being used. And so at that point is when this uh, individual recognizes, okay, these might not be my friends. And so when he arrived, he accused the suspect of using him, stealing his money. And then that's when the suspect said that he didn't like being accused and that he actually says he has an anger problem. And mm -hmm. as it starts getting a little physical between them, he says the victim went and got a knife and was kind of lunging towards him and calling him names. And at that point, he gets angry and takes the knife away. He says he just loses it. And with sure. that level of violence, you know, quite a bit of rage there. When I went to testify, a part of it, I actually got to sit in and watch the medical examiner testify. And that's when I discovered how many times he had been stabbed. They had said he'd been stabbed 57 times. The defense attorney, when they were actually talking to the medical examiner, said, you know, you're exaggerating on the number of cuts. Basically, if there was a slice across the fingers, mm -hmm. and he says, you would count that four times. And the medical examiner actually said, no, I'd count that as one. Mm -hmm. So there was quite a bit of injury, and like I said, which resulted in quite a bit of bloodshed at the scene. Sure, I can't imagine what was going through the mind of the ex-girlfriend when all of this came to light. You know, to some extent, she must have been very familiar with this person's anger issues, right? I and, would imagine. And behavior, and, you know, I can imagine a, a feeling that she may have escaped with her own life out of that relationship as well. And thank God she reported, because it would have been very difficult to find that individual and link him to the homicide if she hadn't come forward about her own sexual assault. 
And I do, I think there was a lot of courage involved there because obviously she has connection with this individual since they have a child together. So you're right, going forward and what result will come out of that by reporting. So I think there was quite a bit of courage on, on her side to, to come forward with the fact that she had been sexually assaulted. Sure. Did you all have a sexual assault response team at the time? Have you? Do you all have those kinds of professionals in Mesa then or now, or how does that work? Uh, we actually did then as well. So yes, we have a very well-developed and trained staff that handled sex crimes. We had a SANE nurse on site at our facility. So the facility where our sex crimes detectives operate out of is actually down the street from our police department. Mm -hmm. And it's designed to be a much more comfortable environment than having to go into a police department to be interviewed and to go through that entire process. So it's actually much more of a calmer environment. It's designed with much different characteristics and gives a much more conducive environment for being able to talk about what just happened. I hope that they uh, learn about this kind of a case so they can see just the full breadth of the impact and what you're seeing there in terms of the whole spectrum of practice and how you approach the case is just a textbook example of good practice in dealing with sexual assault response. It's just fantastic. Thank you. So I assume not only did he get convicted, but that he is serving a, quite a long prison term. So yes, he was convicted. Where this case is uh, one that I recall very strongly is because it was actually the first case I testified in. And uh -huh. I was on the stand for a day and a half for this case uh, to cover both the scene, the blood spatter interpretation, and then the DNA. Where I found that to be enlightening in terms of my career was the aspect of seeing a case to resolution and having a different point of view than I did when I first entered the field. So mm. when I came in, I'm young and I'm excited, and as I still am in this field, but excited to go in and make a difference and went to a crime scene and my job is to help figure out what happened and collect DNA and develop potential investigative leads and being of assistance to the investigation of this crime. Always looked at it as the event has already occurred and so I don't have to have an emotional tie to it. Now I'm in there just to help figure out what happened. So that's very much how I looked at it and is a great way to look at it in the field of forensics. You know, we are non-biased, but we go in and look what we have and we never really talk to the victims' families. We're not involved on that aspect of it. That's the police's job. So you go in very clinical, you look at the evidence, you collect it, you go back, you analyze it, and then you have a sense of resolution when you are able to link cases or give information, and then the case is kind of done. Mm -hmm. And when I went to testify, and, and you know have those nerves of testifying, I still looked at it that exact same way. Because I was on the stand for so long, there was the breaks and like the lunch break and the end of the day and come back the next morning. Because I was coming right back on to get on the stand, the prosecutor had me uh, sitting in the room before they called me back in the stand. And I would sit right behind the prosecutor. Well, when I sat down, I was sitting next to an older gentleman and some other people next to him. And I didn't give any pause to who this person was. And he leaned over to me and he said, thank you so much for what you've done for my son. And that was like, this moment of realization that this was uh, somebody's son, this was yeah. a real person, and that it was my work was impactful and beneficial to him and his family. Here's this awful event, and he knows his son has been killed, and 
there was a recognition that he was comforted by the fact that I was in there with his son and collected that evidence and went back and worked and did this case, which was, you know, an eye-opener and a bit overwhelming, really, because it was like, oh, okay, this is real. I'm not just a scientist working very clinical mm -hmm. work. I'm actually involved in something much bigger. Law enforcement and the impact to the community is really there, and that sense of purpose I think is important for all scientists to know and for me to pass on to those who work because often not everybody in the lab will go out to scenes and won't be connected to the cases they work, but they're involved whether they're testifying and later based on their testimony, people will lose their freedom and go to jail. And it's important that we recognize that our work has importance, the quality work and the aspect of it is all critical for it to work properly. Sure. It's about having that legitimacy, the trust of the community. And we often talk about being very objective and scientific and that kind of thing. I think the other side of that is that if we're doing our job in that way, if you're doing your job in that way as a forensic scientist, you're showing a kind of care and respect for that victim that is very deep, very meaningful. And obviously the father understood that and appreciated it. It's great. It's a wonderful thing. Very, very fortunate that they were able to see that kind of resolution for their son, that there was some justice involved. To close, let's talk a little bit more broadly about these kinds of cases and the challenges that arise from them. Where do you think we are right now, not only in Mesa, but more broadly in the country with respect to how we handle sexual assault, unsolved cases, homicide, and the use of biological evidence. Where do you think we need to be going in terms of getting to the next level of improving how we work on these cases? There is a, quite a bit of difference in our field depending on agency to agency, how cases are processed, how they're requested, and how quickly they can get to them. So mm -hmm. unfortunately, it really comes down to a resource issue. Crime labs are very challenged. What I have learned through the years is that crime labs are very hardworking, very efficient. In fact, your labs that have large backlogs, it's no reflection on their ability or how hard they're working. They simply have more demand than they have supply. So where I think it really needs to go, and like I said, we have had quite a bit of support in Mesa and the recognition from our department of how critical we are to the law enforcement agencies. But I really think that's the story that needs to be told to cities and to law enforcement agencies is really how powerful tool this is. These days, I believe, you know, even the public believes, based on the television and things that they know, that everybody really has a right to forensic science. When they call the police department, they expect everything to be done in their case to be able to come to some justice or some resolution. And that where the capability is there, uh, it, it's not really happening. And like I said, I see that all over the nation, and that's unfortunate, and that's where I think things need to change. If the resources and this was truly recognized to be as critical as one of the other divisions in a police department, then I think that you'd start to see a real impact to crime. Like I said, in Mesa, we have a significantly higher clearance rate in our property crimes than we do other cities. Other cities, you know, that information should get out there so that they understand that they can actually decrease crime from all levels. We know that people who commit property crimes are committing much more violent crimes. But you would see a true impact to this nation if crime labs were utilized the way that they should be. And I actually don't think even crime labs quite recognize their potential because they're not there. If you have 10,000 cases backlogged and you're holding and 
only working the ones that are going to court, you don't quite know the power that your field can produce and how you can truly be used. I think you know it in the B cases because sure. you know, those are the ones you know start to expedite and get done fast and you play a critical role. But it's much bigger than that. Mm -hmm. So I really see that that's where there's so much awareness on so many levels. The sex assault kits and being able to work those I think is critical and everybody should definitely be behind that. Crime labs, law enforcement, everyone because again, Patterns can be seen, cases can be solved. Like I said, unfortunately, sometimes police are on the wrong direction, so crime labs can help give that as well. This is not the Kind of a grounding, isn't for. it? Right, right. Yeah. right. Here's, here's the actual objective reality, <laughs> not what your gut is telling you, you know? Yeah, and, and uh, you know, and there's good reason for those, you know, their gut feelings, mm -hmm. but that assistance, I think, really keeps that balance. And, yes. you know, I really hope that even within my career, I can get a chance to see that happening on a bigger scale. Well, we have seen changes. I mean, back in 2002 and 2003, there was still controversy about the use of all felons databases. And now that's pretty much universal, I believe, across the country. And now there's still people wondering, well, should I be adopting DNA and things like property crimes and the use of other forensic techniques as well? are still still out there developing. So I, I hope your vision is does come true. We've made progress, we've got more to go. So Kimberly Meza, thank you so much for being on Just Science today. Thank you very much. Next week on Just Science, we interview Dr. John Kenny about human trafficking and the role odontology plays. The Forensic Technology Center of Excellence would like to announce the call for abstracts and workshops for their Impression Pattern and Traced Evidence Symposium. If you would like to share your research with the forensic community this January in Arlington, Virginia, please visit www.forensiccoe.org for all of the IPTI's details. Travel sponsorships are available for presenters. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.